Uh, We're going to be moving into a new section of James chapter 3 this morning. We've spent three weeks in that uh, section on the tongue, verses 1 through 12, but we're going to be moving into verses 13 through 18, and uh, we'll sit under the teaching of this passage to, to prepare our hearts for observing the Lord's table. And many of you are familiar with the background of Paul's words to the Corinthians that we always read, and we will in just a little while, uh, as we gather around the Lord's table regarding their conduct of the observance of the table, or I should say their misconduct. Because when Paul writes to the Corinthians the words in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, he's not merely giving them instruction, he's fixing a problem. How would you and I observe the Lord's table today if we were conducting ourselves the way the Corinthians were before Paul got hold of them? Uh, Well, to begin with, the Lord's Supper in the first century was always observed before and after a fellowship meal. And we don't often end up with a fellowship meal the same day we have the Lord's table, but lo and behold, we have it uh, today. But they would uh, start with some uh, singing. Of course, they're gathered in a a villa, which is the Roman uh, home that was big enough to, to hold several people. And they would start with some scripture reading and some singing, and then bread would be broken as a symbol of the beginning of the meal, and they would share a meal together. And then at the end of the meal, they would raise the cup, which is where that tradition came from, and they would pass it around so everybody would have a a drink from it, which would remind them that they were all one body in Christ, the bread that was shed, broken for them and that they were participating uh, in a shared community because of the blood of Christ. And after all of this, uh, they would, they would go to their, their separate homes. But if we were observing the table in the sinful Corinthian manner this morning, there would be different areas of the building where you and I would be seated downstairs to have this meal. And, 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 and the fellowship meal we're going to share after the, the service here, there would probably be a main eating area where lots of uh, people were, and there would be lots of food and drink. But then there would be uh, other areas where other people would be. If we were doing it like the Corinthians, the wealthiest of us, the most well-off financially, would be in the big area with lots of food and drink. And those of us who maybe don't have quite as much would be relegated to other areas because we would not be considered as important. And we would be served, uh, you know, sort of a modest portion. So there would definitely be a division between the members of Gateway for the meal we're going to share if we did it the Corinthian way. And that would be due to the fact that there would already have been divisions in the body. People aren't getting along. Harsh words have been exchanged. People uh, have some issues that are unresolved with one another. But then at the close of the meal, the, the pastor would, would raise the cup and pronounce a blessing over the entire community for Christ having brought everybody together. And anyone hearing that blessing would have thought, uh, you know, I'm a little confused. I mean, how can we celebrate the unity of the church and the common bond we have in Christ when we are all divided? And you see it visually in the, in the, in the Greco-Roman villa. You know, the, the triclinium was where all of the, the rich people would eat. And then the, the, probably the atrium or other places of the villa, that's where they would relegate some of the other people. Well, how could we say that the Lord's table is bringing people together if we're so divided? 
and as a matter of fact, Paul actually tells them, this is not the Lord's Supper you're observing. We don't usually read that part of 1 Corinthians 11 when we come around the table. But he says before the passage we read, uh, this is not the Lord's table you're celebrating. I don't know what you think it is, but it's something else. Because coming together to honor the unity given to us through Christ is not about the food. It's about living in peaceful unity with one another because Jesus made our reconciliation with God possible through the cross. But what we see in James 3, 13 through 18 this morning is that James has the same concern for the church when it comes to how we live with one another, how we function together as the Lord intended, as Paul has for the Corinthians, from which we read out our instruction for the Lord's table. We're going to consider this text this morning under the title, Live With One Another Peaceably. Peaceably. And this Lord's Day and next Lord's Day as we finish this text, I think that will be very clear to us what James is saying here. Let's begin with a word of prayer and ask God's blessing on us as we look at this text together. Father, we've already been full this morning of the uh, rich truths of your love for us and your sacrifice for us. And we thank you, Father, for the community that we can share in Christ because of what you have done to bring us together through the cross. And Father, I pray that as we study this text, as, as it's lifted up in front of us, as we sit under his teaching, which makes us uncomfortable at times, and James has a great way of doing that. Father, I pray that we would already in our hearts be yielding to you, that we'd be saying yes to your word. And, and that we would be willing to probe our minds and our hearts and say, God, what is it you need me to change? What is it you need to make, me to make right? Not so I can have this uh, perfect Christian life where I think everything is put together, but for your honor and glory as, as you build within us those virtues that we can't possibly build on our own so that you can show to the world that reconciliation is possible through God because of the cross of Christ. So, Father, I pray that you would do this for us and minister to us for your glory's sake and for the good of your people and use your word in our lives. And we'll pray all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Let's begin reading the text together. James asks a familiar question. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now let's return back to verse 13 and I want you to notice this interesting phrase, the meekness of wisdom. 
What does this little phrase mean? Well, back in our study of chapter 1, I told you that James writes his letter to this scattered flock in a way that resembles Hebrew wisdom literature. For example, it is obvious that James is very familiar with the wisdom literature found in his own divinely inspired scriptures and ours, especially the book of Proverbs. But James and his brothers, including Jesus and Jude, would have grown up also reading other popular works of Hebrew wisdom that are not in the Bible, such as the wisdom of Ben Sirah and the wisdom of Solomon. In fact, there are several places in our study of James that I could have taken the time to show you that some of James's ideas and phrases are very similar to what we read in the book of Proverbs or what we read in Ben Sirah and the wisdom of Solomon. If you want the sermons to be even longer, uh, we could do that. But here, I'm simply reminding you that James models or styles his letter very much like he's writing Hebrew wisdom literature. And, and I mean, reading James, you're sometimes thinking you're reading the book of Proverbs. James moves from topic to topic with this sort of poetic language, using these short, pithy sayings and striking imagery. And we just finished this section on the tongue where James uses the imagery of a horse and his bit, a ship and the rudder, a fire, a spring, fig trees, grapevines, olives, salt and fresh water. But most importantly, James is always setting before us two paths. And the two paths idea is the signature of wisdom literature. In fact, that's what wisdom is in the first place in the Bible. It's, it's an understanding of the right path that God in the created order, according to his righteous will, himself has designed for us to take in any given situation. And wisdom includes a desire to obediently take that path as opposed to another path. That's why being wise in the Bible is not about being smart. It's about being moral. It's about being upright. It's about being obedient. In wisdom literature, the path of the wise or the righteous leads to life and blessing, or, and, and the path of the fool or the wicked leads to death and judgment. For example, a proverb says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter under the full day. But... The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And you might look at this illustration of the two paths. You might think, you know, wait a minute. He must not have found a really good illustration for this because the path on uh, the one side looks just as good as the path on the other side. Why isn't one of the paths bright and the other dark? But, you know, that's just the whole point. While we are blindly looking at the choices in life, both paths may seem very attractive to us. In fact, truth be told, the way we should not go will often seem more attractive to us than the one that God says to take. But God knows where each of those paths lead, even if we can't see it. And we have to trust God when he tells us that one path leads to life and the other path leads to death. And we need to remember that when we choose the beginning of a path, we are at the same time choosing the end of the path. And the end of the path, where it leads, determines the quality of the path. God knows where the path leads. 
Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. This is also the message of James. In fact, James tells us toward the very beginning of his letter, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. James is giving us wisdom. He's giving us two paths. And you know what? We could go back to all the sermons so far that I've preached on James and we could, we could show that, that James is, is styling his letter just like wisdom literature. We could summarize James uh, 1, 2 through 4 this way. The wise are joyful in times of trials and learn patience while remaining in them, but the foolish become bitter and seek a way out. That's essentially what he's saying in those verses. We could look at the end of that chapter and read the wise hear the word of God submissively, submissively and they follow it to God's blessing. But the foolish hear the word of God forgetfully, leading to their self-deception. Our study of the tongue that we just finished could be summarized. Those who bridle their, uh, uh, the, the wise bridle their tongue diligently but the foolish let their words drive them rebelliously to destruction. This is what James teaches. So coming back to our text, what then is the meekness of wisdom? What James refers to here is the observation that wisdom or choosing the path of God's blessing leads us to meekness or gentleness, kindness, humility. This is really striking. I read through most of Proverbs this week just looking for examples of this, and it's something I never really thought of before. You could read this phrase, the meekness that comes from wisdom, or the meekness that is produced by true wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is submissiveness and obedience to God. And in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is always going obediently and pliably on the path that God says we should take. And that path always leads to blessing. But the foolish or the wicked or the scoffers take the opposite path, which leads to a life that is harsh and bitter and cruel to themselves and to everybody around them. So Proverbs tells us, that wisdom's ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. All her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. She, uh, those who hold her fast are called blessed. And the rest of Proverbs demonstrate this principle again and again. And, and, and that all of wisdom's paths are peace. I'll give you a few examples. He says in Proverbs 10, 11 through 12, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife. Love covers all offenses. There's a meekness in wisdom, a, a softness, a, a genuine compassion. Proverbs 12, 18 says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 15.4, a gentle tongue. We could say a meek tongue. That's the same verbal idea. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 15.18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets 
contention. A quieting of contention is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 16, 24, gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. By contrast, those who refuse to follow God's wisdom are always stirring up strife and contention. And we find this, for example, in Proverbs 6, 12 through 15 says, a worthless person, a wicked man goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. And if we keep reading, it says there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. And all seven of them create unrest or disunity or strife. He says, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, with this background in mind, we have a pretty good understanding of what James means when he uses the phrase phrase, meekness of wisdom. True wisdom, or as James calls it in verse 15, wisdom that comes down from above, that is from God. True wisdom, divine wisdom, produces meekness, gentleness, pliability, submissiveness, kindness, compassion, help, genuine love for others. It is a wisdom characterized by the meekness it produces. Now, this observation that divine wisdom, wisdom from above, produces meekness is I think the interpretive key that unlocks everything James is saying in this text. And I think you'll see rather easily now why his big idea is that we should live with one another peaceably. Let's go back to the beginning of the text here in verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you. I want you to know the word understanding here is a word that refers to someone who has expertise in a particular area. Who is the wise person in your Christian community, your church? Who is the theological specialist? Who is the one who has the biblically correct answers for what Christians should believe and how they should behave? Okay, James says, then let him live up to his faith. Notice you have that theme going on right here. By his good conduct, let that wise person, let that religious expert show, let him prove, let him live up to his works in the meekness that comes from real wisdom, wisdom from above. In other words, you can tell if this person is truly wise if their wisdom comes from above, from God, if you can look at the way they conduct themselves and see that they are meek and humble and amicable and friendly and they have the ability to bring people together in unity and and they genuinely care for people and they desire to serve rather than to be served and they're thankful And they're obedient to God. All of these virtues are are characteristics of those who are meek. 
But, verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Bitter jealousy refers to being envious of another believer having rivalry between you and somebody else. And selfish ambition refers to a strong self-interest. It refers to making choices for one's own gain rather than for the good of others. And together, these two terms describe a person who is not humbled, but self-centered, not invested in the interests and needs of others, but invested only in self-promotion. In short, someone who, is not, who does not bring people together in unity, but who divides. And James says, if that is what is going on in your heart, do not boast in your expertise or in your so-called wisdom, and do not falsely claim to have wisdom. You may think you're one of the wise ones, but James says you're not wise at all. True wisdom is about meekness and humility and compassion. This is the same kind of thing James says at the end of chapter one, remember? When he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. In other words, you're not religious at all. You're not an expert like you might think you are. So you have to remember something. I've mentioned this a few times before. Most of the Jews, especially if they grew up in and around Jerusalem, like most of James's congregation that scattered most likely did, they would, have, they would have grown up under the direct governing influence of the Pharisees. The irritating thing about the Pharisees is that they were usually right about what the Bible said, what the Old Testament said. They knew the scriptures backward and forward, and they actually defended a very conservative theology. In fact, if Jesus had wanted to be identified with the Jewish group with which he most likely aligned theologically, he would have been closest to the Pharisees out of all of the other groups we know existed in his day. But Jesus did not teach and minister to people like the Pharisees because the Pharisees were harsh and mean and self-serving as a rule. There were exceptions. But generally, as a rule, they were self-serving, harsh, and mean. Jesus rescued people from their illnesses and from terrible sins, but the Pharisees sometimes wouldn't rejoice at all with everybody else. They'd be angry that Jesus had violated one of their traditions in the process of healing or forgiving sins. Jesus said that the Pharisees, were, were, with, their, with their rules of righteous living, would lay heavy burdens upon people's shoulders. But Jesus was loving and kind He said, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle. That's our same word. I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's wisdom. Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah that he would be so gentle that a bruised reed he would not even break and a faintly burning wick he would not even quench. In other words, Jesus was truly a man of wisdom. He was the real expert. Not because of his knowledge, which was vast, but because of his gentleness, because of his humility, because of his obedience. That's the lesson James is teaching us here. James is saying, 
live with one another peacefully. Minister to each other and with each other. Share your faith, encourage people, help people, serve in the church, be a part of the community of faith. But do all of that in a way that promotes peace and spiritual harmony within the body of Christ. Not strife or division or conflict or self-interest or competition. And James makes this point emphatic by contrasting what I will call wisdom from below and wisdom from above. That is the simplest outline I think I've ever found in a text of scripture, okay? But it's really clear here. And, and by focusing on what he says about each of these, we can see what his message is about the right kind of wisdom, a wisdom that teaches us to live with one another peacefully. I am going to cover this morning wisdom from below in our next few minutes, and then we'll gather around the table, and I'll finish up, Lord willing, next week, wisdom from above. There's, a, there's so much I want to say about that second one. I just couldn't fit it all in, okay? So you'll have to forgive me. We'll, go, we'll, we'll keep going here. And if, you, if you're new to Gateway, this happens all the time, okay? So there's no worry here. We're, we're used to this. There's just so much of the text would say, what would you do if you were me, right? So first of all, wisdom from below. James 3.15 says, this is not wisdom that comes down from above. And I'm calling it therefore wisdom from below. What is not wisdom that comes down from above? The kind of wisdom that justifies or produces bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in the heart that is manifested in bad conduct. It's wisdom from below because of the way James describes the wisdom in the rest of the verse. He says that it is, notice, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And these three descriptions go from bad to worse. Earthly simply refers to things that are on the earth as opposed to things that are in heaven or things in the unseen realm, the real world that every page of the Bible reveals to us. So what James is saying is that this wisdom looks at the world from earthly perspective only, not according to God's design and purpose and eternal realities, not taking that into equation, not taking the transforming power of the gospel into the equation. And there's a kind of earthly wisdom that seems very moral and at times even biblical. Aesop's fables that have their origin in ancient Greek wisdom the Chinese sage Confucius, the Roman philosopher Marcus Aurelius. Every age and nearly every civilization has its sages and its collection of sayings and teachings that will show you how to be happy and productive and to live this life well on the earth. And we have our sages today. And you have to be very careful not to buy into them. And I'm not saying because everything they say is bad. It's because they're pointing you only to find happiness and fulfillment and productivity and do the right thing on this earth. They're earthly as opposed to heavenly. And they will sound really good. And sometimes you'll say, well, this, I can find biblical evidence for this. But don't be fooled. This is not wisdom from above. This is wisdom from below. Because that's where it ends. It ends with living life well on this earth. Earthly wisdom cannot put you on a path to eternity. James then says that this wisdom is unspiritual, and this is opposed to what is spiritual. It, literally, the Greek word is soulish. It has to do with the human life, the human soul, human emotions, even the human body, soulish. 
This is the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 2.14 when he says, the natural person does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. You're familiar with that verse? The word natural is a translation of soulish. It's, it's, it's something that has to do only with us and, and not the Holy Spirit. So, so the first, earthly, has to do with the earth as opposed to the heavenly. The second has to do with the person rather than the spirit who's working in the person. It's a wisdom that focuses intensely on my life, my well-being, my advancement, my goals, my ideas, my beliefs, my opinions. And those are all worthy goals to us because after all, our beliefs and opinions are right and good and justifiable and biblical. We all think they are. But an unspiritual wisdom is short-sighted when it comes to serving God and serving others. We advance that self-justifiable idea and goal. Because as believers, if we're trying to follow God, we, we get ideas and we're like, this is of course a great idea because I have a great heart and I really do want to follow God and glorify him. So of course this isn't bad. But again, it's short-sighted, James would say, because it's only about what we are thinking and we're not looking outward at others. And finally, James says that this wisdom is even demonic. And this is really the same thing he says earlier in the chapter, you remember, about the unbridled tongue. He says that the tongue is an unrighteous fire that is kindled by hell, verse 6. So the source of this wisdom is the realm of the devil himself, just like he was saying back in James 3, 6. The devil with his host of followers whose only mission is to oppose and frustrate God's holy will and lead God's creatures into rebellion and conflict against him and against everyone else. That's what Satan is tirelessly doing right now. He's trying to make that happen. So the ultimate source of this wisdom from below is the devil himself. It's an earthly wisdom that looks only at what is happening in the here and now, but ignores what is really going on in the world from God's perspective. It is a soulish wisdom that intensely focuses on the preservation and advancement of one's own ideas and feelings. And it's a demonic wisdom that arises from the sinful nature introduced into the world and continued through the work of Satan himself. In short, it's a wisdom that is spawned by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the evidence for this, James tells us, is the very fact that it is a wisdom that produces bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, which in, in, in turn produces unrest and all kinds of evil. That's what he says here in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, and those are the same words that he just used in verse 14, where this jealousy and selfish ambition that he's already mentioned, where that exists there will be disorder, that is confusion, uncertainty, instability, unsettledness, commotion, tumults, disturbances, conflict. That's what that word embodies. There will be disorder and every vile practice. The word vile means wicked or base or worthless. It's a kind of word we see in James whenever he talks about sin. We've already seen James does not pull any punches when he talks about sin. He calls sin what it is, and he says that if we are living out of wisdom, a, a way of following God and living with one another in the body of Christ, where we do not prefer others but are focused on our agenda, our ideas of what is right, then this is the kind of environment we can expect to arise within the church. Disruption, conflict, and sinful behavior. And this is exactly what James describes 
if we keep reading after chapter three. Of course, James doesn't know we broke up his letter into chapters, right? So if we start in, in chapter four, verse one, and keep reading, we continue really the idea. We're gonna treat this as a different section. But if you look, for instance, in verses two through three, he tells these, these scattered believers, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, does he talk about actual physically murdering somebody here? I don't know. I haven't studied that passage yet. So we have to wait, you know, to find out. Or you can, you know, get a commentary and read ahead. Uh, but uh, he's, he's at least speaking metaphorically here. And he says, you covet and cannot attain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He's showing them the kind of congregation they're going to have if they don't follow true wisdom that he talks about here at the end of chapter three. And it does nothing to advance the work of Christ in the church. Now, don't imagine when you read this passage that these believers James is writing to are all angry, feisty, self-centered people who don't love the Lord. They want to advance their own kingdom and their own ideas. I mean, there are certainly those kinds of people who, who wander into the flock of God. It's true. But most of these people that he's talking to here, they're like you and me. We all have our ideas of how things should be. Our ideas of what God wants, our justifiable preferences, our our hills that we will die on. For God's glory, of course, not our own. We have our biblical worldview about the way things should be, the way things should be at Gateway. If we were to have the ideal, the, the ideal being the way we see things, I definitely have this. I'm the pastor. You have this. If you're concerned at all for Christ's glory and his church, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm saying it's a reality. If, if we're invested, if we're interested, if, if we love God and want his word to advance, we have ideas. It's true. And we are willing to go to battle if push came to shove to muster kindred spirits around us to our cause and to push for what is right by God's standard. It's a zeal that we have because we are jealous for God's glory and for what is right. In fact, the word jealousy in the the text that we read earlier in the passage is actually the word zeal or zealous. And zealous in a good context can mean something very good. But James is telling us, that if the zeal turns into what he calls here bitter zeal and a personal crusade that causes division, disorder, disruption in the body of Christ, then we have strayed from the path of true wisdom. This is not wisdom from above. Now, this does not mean that we compromise what is right and true simply so that we don't have conflict with people. We're going to learn that when James begins to tell us what wisdom from above actually looks like in the next verse. And it's so important of a principle. I want to take the the whole time next week to really flesh this out. I think there's a lot we can learn from the last two verses of this text. But we never set aside what is right for the sake of unity. Jesus never did that either. At the same time, when James asks, who is the wise expert among us in matters of religion? He doesn't go on to say, he doesn't go on to say, that depends on how much you know. That depends on your doctrine. 
your ability to navigate complicated theological truths. He doesn't say that. The test, he says, is whether you are living out the meekness that is produced by wisdom. So we can draw at least one conclusion so far. If there is conflict or competition or jealousy or hard feelings between you and someone else in the body of Christ, the Lord would say to you through James, heal that relationship. Like family. I haven't called much attention to this, but you've noticed nearly 20 times in the book of James, and we, we, maybe about 12 times so far or more, the author refers to us as brothers or beloved brothers, usually meaning brothers and sisters. And once he uses the word sister in James, we'll see that coming up in chapter four. And that's a much rarer thing, actually, in the biblical authors. That's who we are in Christ. We're members of the same spiritual household. We belong to one another. Families don't always get along. Do you know that? Some of you know that. They don't always agree on everything. They sometimes offend one another, but they work it out because there's a bond of love that unites them. That's what God calls us. We might summarize what James is saying here as make sure there is no strife between you and members of your family because a relationship of strife or bitterness betrays a wisdom that is from below. And that's not the kind of wisdom that God is going to use to advance his purpose at our church or any other church that he has graciously given to the world. So as we observe the table this morning, let's search our hearts and commit ourselves to making sure we are at peace with others in the body and determine in our minds, if there's some conversation we need to have, if there's something that we need to do to make this happen, we're going to do that. Let's come with that kind of unity in our hearts as we gather at the table this morning.